This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Welcome to World Shared Practices Forum. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital. With us today is Dr. Adrian Randolph, Associate Professor at Harvard Medical School and Senior Associate in Critical Care Medicine at Boston Children's Hospital. Dr. Randolph is the founder and first chair of the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury and Sepsis Investigators, POLICI, one of the principal networks in the United States and now increasingly international conducting clinical studies. Moreover, we're fortunate to have Dr. Randolph with us today because she is the author of the current SCCM guidelines and the author of several manuscripts on the definition of sepsis. Our goal today is to discuss the state of the art of sepsis research, to understand where did the uh, definitions come from, what is the current burden, and what does Dr. Randolph see as some of the significant literature to date and some of the future uh, research that needs to be done going forward. But before we begin, we thought it would be important and interesting for us to ask you a question. And so could I ask you to tell us what city and country you're in, and could you tell us in your pediatric intensive care unit, is sepsis the leading cause of mortality in your unit, or is it the second or third or fourth leading cause? And we'd be interested if you could share that with us around the world. Adrian, welcome. Um, could you take us back to the late 1990s when you were thinking about creating POLICI? What was the, the emphasis on research at that time? What were you trying to target and, and how has that changed over time? Well, POLICI was uh, created in the late 1990s. We began by looking at uh, focusing on acute lung injury and trying to have a pediatric network similar to the NIH-funded Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome Network that was for adults um, because there were so few studies about acute lung injury and acute respiratory distress syndrome in adults. Soon after, we quickly realized that the majority of our patients with acute lung injury had some form of very severe infection, that mostly pneumonia, that was driving the acute lung injury. And we really, in order to prevent it and treat it effectively, we really needed to focus in on these infections. So in 2002, when we had our first formal meeting where three trials groups got, three groups that were currently doing trials in acute lung injury um, and transfusion-related research got together um, and formed the network, we called it the Pediatric Acute Lung Injury um, and Sepsis Investigators Network, and then focused, tried to focus on both because the bulk of acute lung injury is related to infection. I wonder if we could move on now to um, a, an understanding of the burden of sepsis in 2013 around the world. How do you see it? How would we characterize it for the critically ill child? Well, sepsis is the leading cause of death in infants and children around the world. And um, the majority of this sepsis is, is from severe pneumonia where there's over almost close to 2 million deaths per year from severe pneumonia. Um, and then severe diarrheal disease is another 1.6 million or more um, deaths. Um, malaria 
is a severe problem in many countries um, and another million or more deaths. And then measles, which is a preventable disease, is another 550,000 deaths worldwide. So the majority of burden of sepsis is really on a lot of these are pre potentially preventable diseases. And if you look globally, um, if you since pneumonia is the number one type of infection um, worldwide, if you look at what's been estimated in the most recent report of 156 million cases, 151 million of these pneumonia cases are in the developing countries. And the reason for that, Jeff, is because of lack of immunization, poor sanitation, crowding, indoor air pollution, um, poor nutrition, and all of these things contribute to this global burden. Um, but one thing to note is that immunization of a lot of these, um, a lot of these organisms against these organisms that cause pneumonia, both influenza, measles, um, haemophilus influenza, and pneumococcus in the developed countries, immunization rates are very high. In these pre-developed countries, immunization rates are very low, and the children often have malnutrition and other uh, reasons that cause immune suppression and poor response to vaccination, even when they do get vaccination. So in much of the developing world, um, the focus on sepsis prevention has to be on remedying these public health-related factors, and that will markedly decrease the burden of sepsis globally if we could focus in on some of these things. And then what I call tier two prevention efforts are that early recognition and management of those children who are septic and figuring out how best to intervene in these um, cases. And because it's such a heterogeneous um, epidemiology of all kinds of different organisms causing different types of syndromes, we can't just have one vanilla response to, um, to that's not going to um, really remedy, decrease this down to the lowest rates it can. It's gonna have an impact. There are certain things, early antibiotics, giving them fluid resuscitation, um, vasopressor use, um, and um, those things that are going to be, be very effective, but still getting it down to the lowest rates we can is gonna be disease and organism specific approaches. Adrian, um, are there any international efforts, united international efforts in our community, the pediatric critical care community, currently underway to combat sepsis? Almost every country has some form of nosocomial infection intervention um, to, that has markedly decreased rates, um, which is interesting, Jeff, because if you asked me that same question in the early 2000s, that would not be the case. But it has been shown that what we did with nosocomial infections by getting them down to close to zero by these multi-element interventions aimed at how they occur, what's causing them, we were, we're hoping that the same bundle approach for sepsis is going to have the same impact. I wonder if we could move now into definition. And one of the things that I've learned from you over time, and this is striking coming from the author of 
the uh, treatment guidelines is that you've emphasized that we can only impact improvements in sepsis so far without further uh, and better definitions to understand and define sepsis. Could you take us through um, kind of the evolution of thinking in our community of pediatric care of how we define sepsis and where we are right now in the definition and what's still lacking? So in 2005, when Eli Lilly um, was wanted to do a pediatric trial of activated protein C in sepsis, it became quite apparent that we didn't have a definition of sepsis for children. So in order to, they already had the ongoing adult trial of, of activated protein C or zygris. And when they wanted to do an international pediatric trial, we, they didn't have any enrollment criteria because sepsis was not defined. The term was not clearly defined. So um, they, can, they helped us to convene. Um, Brett Girard and Brom Goldstein and myself led a consensus conference um, to define sepsis and uh, organ dysfunction in children. And what we came up with was very similar to the adult definitions of sepsis because the goal of these definitions was really to um, define a population of children um, who were likely to have a systemic infection. It was to be sensitive um, and identify this population of children. And then we had some severity criteria that we were going to use to get them to, as to what, how severe did they have to be to get into the trial, which was mechanical ventilation and vasopressor support. Those definitions um, are very sensitive, but not very specific. So um, for example, basically to have sepsis, you have to have infection, which you don't have to have a microbiologically confirmed infection, but you have to have a high suspicion of infection. Like if there's pus in what should be a sterile area, like someone has an empyema, even if you don't get an organism, clearly the patient has an infection. Or purpura fulminans, very likely the patient has an infection. Um, and then you have to have evidence of systemic inflammation. So then the systemic inflammatory response for adults is tachypnea, tachycardia, some type of alteration in the white blood count, either too high or too low. Um, as well as fever. For kids, we have the same four, tachypnea, tachycardia, um, fever, or hypothermia, because in babies it's often hypothermia, and then um, alteration in the white blood count, either high or low, based upon cutoffs based for age. Now, because children, as you know, can have extreme tachycardia just from stress and often get tachypneic, um, from stress, we wanted at least one of the criteria um, has to be fever or white blood count because we felt like if we just had have kids who have um, tachypnea tachycardia and maybe you know might be infected um, with um, that it would be too nonspecific. So we added in that at least one of them has to be the alteration in temperature or alteration in white blood count. As I understand it, we stratify the definition of sepsis uh, by three tiers, uh, sepsis, severe sepsis, septic shock. Could you take us through that and the significance of each category? Yes, so very similar to um, what they did in, for adult patients, um, we categorize patients according to a spectrum of severity where severe sepsis in, that is that the systemic inflammation 
has now gone on to involve specific organs like the brain, the kidneys, the liver, bone marrow with, um, and, um, have, and some of these may be um, presented by a rising creatinine, um, evidence of disseminated intervascular coagulation, um, neurologic failure, or the lung with acute lung injury, evidence of acute lung injury. So that all means sepsis has now progressed to have severe organ um, dysfunction of different organs. And then septic shock is sepsis with cardiovascular organ dysfunction that isn't responsive to adequate fluid resuscitation. And um, that is um, usually requires vasopressor support. So septic shock though, however, is a spectrum and a pretty broad spectrum because as you know, in infants, um, they can sustain tachycardia for prolonged periods and keep up their cardiac output and especially healthy children can. And they show subtle signs of shock with poor perfusion, um, maybe cold extremities um, and um, poor urine out, low urine output. So there's actually five criteria for septic shock and a patient needs to have only two of these five criteria to be categorized as septic shock. But you and I know that a patient who has poor perfusion and is cold and low urine output is very different from that patient who received 80 cc's per kilo of fluid and is now on an epinephrine infusion. But despite that, it is an encompassing definition and that's the more severe spectrum of sepsis. Well, can I ask you this? Um, and I suspect I speak for our audience. Uh, um, we certainly understand that we can't advance the field if we can't define it, as you noted. And so methodically, um, you and others led the development of the definition. And of course, that allows us to open the door to clinical investigation and to study outcomes. But uh, in the case of, for instance, a common uh, diagnosis that we see is bronchiolitis. And you know, I now realize if I was more rigorous that I would define that bronchiolitic as having severe sepsis meets the criteria. And yet I don't think about that child as having severe sepsis. In your own practice, and also as a leader in this field, um, how, do you, how do you respond to that? Um, is, does that mean that the category is not useful, uh, or it's useful in a certain context of studying it, but not in everyday practice? That's a very uh, good question, Jeff. I think that the answer to it is that, to me, bronchiolitis is a much more descriptive definition of the patient's problem what we would need to treat the patient and um, the likely outcome if it was a previously healthy baby, for example, than you telling me I have a septic baby that I just admitted, Adrian, that, um, that needs X and Y. Because of this, you, although we have this definition of sepsis, which as I mentioned was created really to enroll patients in clinical trials, similar to the adult trials of sepsis, um, all of which I will mention in multiple categories of trials are, have been negative and part of it is because it's this catch-all um, terminology. Um, we came up with other definitions, the Polici Network along with the International Sepsis Forum, which was with, received some funding for the Center for the Critically Ill Child and the Mannion Foundation, to the first time ever have a consensus conference, which we spent three days with people from around the world South Africa to talk about um, Andrew Argent to talk about um, children who are on um, antiretroviral therapy for HIV. How does that affect um, sepsis? Um, we had people from Thailand talking about dengue. 
we talked about each of these specific infections and syndromes and how that changes our and how we need to tailor our definitions in, to um, take into account these different um, syndromes. Meningococcemia, for example, um, each one needs their own focus and may have different targeted therapies that may be effective just for them. So we published these definitions because at the time there wasn't even a really good definition of severe pneumonia for the ICU population. How do you define pneumonia in a critically ill patient? Um, we tried to come up with these definitions, specific definitions, and um, we published them online in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, and they're available for free. Um, it was in the May um, 2005 um, supplement to Pediatric Critical Care Medicine, and um, anyone can have all those definitions we came up with. And our um, focus now is on trying to validate these definitions and coming up with bronchiolitis is bronchiolitis and why? And how do you distinguish that baby with bronchiolitis who comes into the emergency room who's tachypneic, tachycardic, um, has a low white count, and um, looks really a little bit ashen that you need to intubate from the same baby who has pneumococcal pneumonia and in another hour you're having to start vasopressors and um, you know the baby has a very high mortality risk and, and you intubate that baby as well. And so the problem is when you first see these ba patients, they kind of present the same. And then it's apparent to you that it's bronchiolitis or something else after you observe them for a while. But often that baby with bronchiolitis who has a bacterial co-infection can look fine to you at the beginning but then end up you know, becoming very, very ill. So these sepsis definitions are all encompassing for multiple reasons. One is that early identification and management, but, it's, but what we really need is better diagnostic criteria and better ways to pick out who's gonna have bronchiolitis. You know, by the time you get to them the next morning in the ICU, it's apparent the baby had RSV bronchiolitis, but to the person first seeing them in the ER is very hard to distinguish. So there's, plus, there's sort of strengths and weaknesses of doing it either way, but once you know it's bronchiolitis, then use bronchiolitis because that's helpful in knowing what you're managing. Once you've figured it out that it's methicillin-resistant staph or it's necrotizing pneumonia with empyema in a patient in shock who might need to go on to a lot of higher order rescue therapies, call it that because that's more helpful to your colleagues to know what they're dealing with. So Dr. Randolph, if I follow you accurately, uh, the um, need to define sepsis uh, was driven by two goals. The first goal was, as you noted, so that we could do more rigorous research. We had no definition and we can't study it and look for outcomes if we can't define it. And obviously that's important. And the second goal was in the clinical arena, as you've said, is that these are introductory criteria, but they don't really tell us where the patient's going. But they help us align the patient into sepsis or severe sepsis or septic shock as really kind of entry criteria to help me understand really how aggressive I need to be. Uh, and, and telling me I need to be aggressive early on, depending on which cohort that I'm in, or, or certainly be vigilant, but it doesn't point the way forward as to where that patient's going to be in 24 or 48 hours. Is that an accurate summation of where you are? Yes, that's a good summary, Jeff. I think that the whole goal here is to identify early on 
those patients who may progress rapidly um, to catch them early because we know that's where these definitions are going to have an impact. In, in this whole group of infected patients, only a few, you know, depending on what some countries, half may have a risk of mortality. Um, other countries, a smaller proportion um, may have a risk of mortality. But either way, identifying that cohort early on and by intervening in all of them, if you can't tell the difference, if you, as soon as you can stratify them out, great. But if you can't tell how, which direction the patient's going in, give them a bundle of interventions to try to prevent the inexorable progression that often occurs in those patients who have the worst forms of sepsis, who it's hard to distinguish from those who have more, um, less severe infections. So I wonder if I could turn to our colleagues around the world now and ask, um, could you tell us first again what city and country your program is in? And the first question is, is your PICU currently uh, utilizing a sepsis bundle, a formal sepsis bundle, either by the World Sepsis with PIC initiative or some local initiative that you're part of? And if you are utilizing a sepsis bundle, does your sepsis bundle utilize these definitions as part of the entry criteria for these patients so that you can appropriately cohort and follow them? We're back. Um, Adrian. I wonder if we could move on now to um, treatment. And you are uh, one of the authors of the 2008 and the 2012 Surviving Sepsis Campaigns. You're one of the lead pediatric authors. And uh, Dr. Mark Peters from Great Ormond Street, London, as you know, in the June World Shared Practices Forum, took us through the guidelines and talked about uh, the guidelines and some of the challenges of actually implementing at the bedside. Uh, but I, I know many of us out there are curious to know what, what you see as the insider's view in developing those guidelines. What do you see now as the, the strengths of the guidelines? And from your perspective as one of the authors of them, what are some of the challenges that remain and gaps and, 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 and issues that we really need to focus on going forward? Jeff, I think uh, that, that the guidelines are the best we can do at the time given the limited data that we have. But that said, um, I, don't, I don't think any of the authors would say that they feel comfortable that this is the best way to manage all of the patients that we see with sepsis. That there has to be, um, we need more evidence to guide us in what, are, what is a better way. Um, especially in the area, I think right now, two things that are key um, is uh, fluid management and antimicrobials. Okay, first um, going over fluid management, uh, there's, there are new data emerging from a large African study or recent data from the FEAST trial um, Dr. Maitland um, was the lead author on that was posted in the England Journal of Medicine in over 3,000 African children where they categorized patients into either decompensated shock requiring with hypotension, um, persistent hypotension, or some mo most of the 3,000 kids that they randomized had compensated shock, where um, they had the poor perfusion and the poor capillary refill. They met our criteria for septic shock, but not necessarily vasopressor dependent, um, what you and I would in general think of as if I said septic shock to you. Um, 
And the outcomes were clearly mortality was markedly higher, significantly higher in those patients who got fluid boluses compared to no bolus. That was either albumin or normal saline. This was really extremely surprising to everyone in the world. And it took a, lot of t a long time for a lot of people to believe that, is this true? Is this, there must be something in the trial. How could this happen? Um, it is true that over half of the children in that trial had malaria, and it's also true that a third of those, about a third of those child had profound anemia with hemoglobins of five or less. But despite that, you, no matter how they cut the data and they published other papers afterwards, it remains uh, that this, this strategy that we assumed was beneficial and which they extrapolated from what is somewhat known to be beneficial in treating patients with meningococcemia and early meningococcemia um, with this goal-directed, targeted, aggressive fluid resuscitation um, really led to increased mortality. And so it really calls into question, you know, whether, how should we man be managing fluids in many of our patients? Could I ask you this? Um, and as you know, Dr. Mark Peters addressed this as well in the uh, June World Shared Practices Forum. And as you know, uh, Dr. Kath Maitland is actually coming mm -hmm. to a World Shared Practices Forum uh, in the next uh, several months. In your own practice, because I suspect there's a lot of people around the world who want to understand what you now do in your own practice in response to that study. Am I correct in saying you're concerned at the scientific level that we need to study this further? But at a clinical level, have you changed your practice about fluid resuscitation because of the FEAST study? Uh, to be honest, I've always been uh, treating patients who have a pulmonary source of infection more on the dry side than the, if they don't have hemodynamic instability that requires that me to give them fluids or vasopressors to maintain their blood pressure, I tend to um, just give them enough fluids to maintain urine output and perfusion and um, monitor other uh, laboratory values that tell me if they have adequate um, perfusion, such as a lactate, um, their BUN and creatinine. So if a patient has adequate urine output and you know a low lactate and has profound pneumonia, in my treat, which is the majority of the septic patients we treat, uh, many of those patients in my um, practice wouldn't get a lot of extra fluid. In fact, I would cap them off at maintenance fluids and just give them as much. I would be at the bedside constantly titrating in fluid frequently as needed versus giving them these very large boluses of fluid that there are some studies in adults showing that acute lung injury can be, it may be a preventable disease in many patients and may be related to how much fluid we give. Now, is it fair to say that in hypovolemic shock, uh, right. you would continue to be very aggressive yes, with fluids? Yes, in somebody who, I mean, I think that it's very important to figure out quickly why is that patient shocky? First, Make sure that you identify cardiogenic shock because fluids will, not, will often make those patients worse as well. Um, figure out um, which often se certain sepsis organisms can trigger cardiogenic shock and some patients with sepsis even can present with myocarditis and other reasons why they're hy um, hypotensive. So when they are 
um, in shock requiring um, that, that you do something to intervene to improve their blood pressure. I often will use fluids judiciously, making sure, and then you have, that's when you have to get in and really monitor, are you filling the patient adequately with fluid? You may need a central venous catheter to monitor their CVP and, and have it adequately placed so that you can have accurate numbers to see what you're doing with the fluid and then decide, do you need more fluid or do you need vasopressors? And what kind of vasopressors do you need? Do you need to give this patient more tone, some more vasoconstriction? So I'm always very careful with fluid because given that one of the main focuses of my research in the, and uh, a lot of the sepsis we see is pneumonia, in that population, it's clear to me that you can easily overshoot and give them so much fluid and now you have this massive pulmonary edema going up, up, up on the ventilator with the pressures on the ventilator that also kind of kind of drive a vicious cycle. So it's a, to me, fluid management is something done at the bedside, frequent checks, frequent assessment, titration. It can't be something that can be easily protocolized with, you know, once you get up into the unit. In the initial phase, it's important to adequately resuscitate the patient, which is why they um, started off with this 40 cc's per kilo um, goal of initially make sure that you have some adequate um, fluid resuscitation. No, that's also in the guidelines. So, you know, when you start off, if somebody's hypotensive, make sure you give uh, 40 cc's per kilo. And in fact, the definition of septic shock is hemodynamic uh, instantly, despite the fact that they got 40 cc's per kilo. So giving two 20 cc per kilo boluses is, but some patients who come in with bronchiolitis may not need the first 20 cc's per kilo. You know, they may not necessarily be, um, even though they have poor perfusion, et cetera, you don't necessarily need to treat all of them with fluid. It's unclear to me that, that all these patients would benefit from aggressive fluid. It has to be um, using expertise and tailoring it to the patient that you're treating, and especially being careful after the first 40 to 60 per kilo in those pneumonia patients and encephalitis patients um, that you're not overdoing it with the fluid. And, um, because I, I really believe that's some of the populations where we could be doing harm. And we really need to do more fluid studies and, pay, and, and really, um, a priori distinguish who are we treating. You know, all these babies who come in with viral-induced um, inflammatory infectious uh, etiology of their pneumonia, do they need that much fluid? You know, it's unclear to me. Um, we have to be, and these patients who come in with altered mental status and look more like encephalitis, should we be treating them with fluid versus these patients who come in with petechiae and um, have hemodynamic instability and seeing purpura in front of you, clearly they need fluid. So that strategy, there are certain populations you must aggressively treat with fluid and that resuscitation model works perfectly. So Dr. Randolph, if I follow you accurately, uh, what you're emphasizing is this, that in both the definitions and the treatment, one size doesn't fit all and that we need uh, more precise definitions of sepsis. And in the, in the treatment modality, if I understand you, what you're saying is follow the surviving sepsis treatment guideline in the first hour, and that thereafter, uh, ongoing treatment requires uh, an expert clinician at the bedside to use judicious management 
in both assessment and ongoing treatment and that each context will be uh, somewhat different. Yes, that's exactly right, Jeff. And um, I think that is that first hour when you don't know what's going on. You have a baby who looks infected and sickly. You start with the initial resuscitation, but then it evolves and very clearly with your experience, you'll figure out what is and with an x-ray and some of the other diagnostic capabilities that you may have, um, what is exactly going on. And the baby's response to, or child's response to that initial treatment tells you a lot. So that's exactly right, is then, then it's where clinical expertise comes in and categorization of the patient into different um, infectious syndromes, um, which helps you better prognosticate and treat. Now, um, you also mentioned, we only have a short time left, that um, um, antimicrobials remains an issue as well um, in the treatment guidelines. Could you tell us what, uh, what you meant by that and uh, what concerns you may have uh, in that regard? Well, one of the mainstays of treatment, as you know, is antimicrobial therapy in the golden hour. Getting those antibiotics in, in that first hour, is key. Um, or other antimicrobial um, targeted um, at other, other organisms. One of the um, problems is that we have three categories of patients. We have patients who don't have bacterial sepsis. Um, we have patients who have bacterial sepsis with a common organism. And then we have um, patients with bacterial sepsis who have a resistant organism. And unfortunately, Jeff, those are some of the most highly fatal cases, and that's a growing population in um, pediatrics worldwide is this, this growth of resistant organisms. If you um, have a neutropenic patient, for example, and you picked the wrong gram-negative rod coverage because that cancer patient with fever and neutropenia has a organism that's resistant to your antimicrobial with no white blood cells, you haven't given them any way to fight that infection. Their only way to fight that infection is picking the right agent. So you really have to know the epidemiology of your area and you have to overshoot by focusing on these, covering these resistant organisms like MRSA. That said, um, in our studies in the patients who have uh, methicillin resistant Staph aureus with influenza co-infection, all of those patients got vancomycin within the first hour of getting into the hospital and before coming to the ICU, and despite that, it was the biggest predictor of mortality. So we need to target our research as well as documenting our treatments at you know, what is working and what's not and why. Did they not have sufficient levels of vancomycin? Was it not penetrating the lung to get to the infection? But antimicrobial therapy, which is one of the most important of the three categories of intervention you know, in sepsis, is one of the least researched, and and it really has to the research has to be tailored to the epidemiology of the specific population. Where is the future of um, sepsis research, and and what do you see in the next three to five years as the priorities for focus, and what are some of the um, uh, promising interventions on the horizon? For sepsis research, I am now going to focus again. We came from sort of lumping together all these specific infections into sepsis to try to hit those, try to identify and target those kids who have fulminant septic shock and die quickly and, and get at that 
um, population of patients within that golden hour, and that's the whole surviving sepsis bundle. But then you have the group, once they're in the ICU and you've sort of figured out what's going on, and maybe you even have a test that shows this is influenza, or this is uh, RSV, or this is um, the patient has bacteremic or has pus or in, has an empyema um, that needs to be drained or has appendicitis. Um, what needs to be done now is research focused on those specific populations of patients because each of them requires different interventions. For example, influenza. Do antivirals really work in the intensive care unit? Once the, the patient has progressed a respiratory failure, are these influenza antivirals doing anything? Are they effective? Could they be more effective? Do we need twice the dose in these critically ill patients? Here's where, if you're going to save lives, you have to target the interventions and the studies at these populations. And the only way to do that is to create a global network um, of centers that are linked together, sort of an expansion of the policing network linked to a lot of these other international um, networks in, in different countries to do an influenza study of antivirals for influenza, positive patients admitted to the ICU with respiratory failure, to be able to do simple trials of one treatment, see, does it make a difference? And the same with um, some of these antimicrobials. Is vancomycin effective in methicillin-resistant staph aureus pneumonia? Or should we be using something else? Is adding clindamycin beneficial an antitoxin strategy when you have suspected cases? And so that, as well as better diagnostics to be able to figure out who you know, has what quickly to target the therapies is key. And then one of the big frontiers is the role of the host. Um, now we know there's a lot of um, reasons that many patients become septic in the ICU. They have underlying immune suppression from cancer or HIV or other reasons. They have chronic lung disease. They have chronic neurologic disease and they can't manage their secretions when they get an upper respiratory infection. But then uh, still 40% of the patients in developed countries um, are previously healthy and an even higher percentage of children in pre-developed countries are other previously healthy kids. What is it about them that they now present in septic shock and what would make previously healthy kids die from some of these conditions, um, what the suspicion is, is that there's a sort of multiple innate immune defects that are as yet to be identified, and they have mutations in certain genes that control their immune response, that, are, that these specific organisms, which each organism has its own pathway into the body, and, and it requires its own immune response against it to fight it off. It targets that immune pathway and there's something awry and it let it in and let it multiply. And so one of the, the next frontier is really kind of figuring that out. Um, what is it about these kids who get critically ill with influenza? Is it something to do with their um, interfering response and genes that control that? And that's been sort of one of the hot areas of thought in adult populations. There was recently a big um, paper published on that in uh, Nature um, and also a commentary in New England Journal of Medicine about it. But there's many others. Um, this, that same pathway 
is, is also prevalent for West Nile virus and for dengue, the IFIT-M3 gene. So this is sort of the frontier is also looking at the host, not just saying, oh, you know, it was a bad organism, et cetera, but looking at is there something about that host that made them susceptible? So it's, you know, the environmental issues that need to be addressed. Of course, immunization is highly effective and will bring down rates. And then there's the organism itself. Some organisms are just really severe organisms, but then there's the piece of it as the host. And why did that host get such a bad infection? What was it about that patient? Is there something about them that made them susceptible to this? So those are the, the frontiers of research is, is right now seems to be focused on the host. I wonder if I could turn now and ask our colleagues around the world, could you first tell us what city and country your pediatric intensive care unit is in? And the question is, is your program, your pediatric ICU, part of a sepsis research uh, network or consortium? And if so, could you tell us the name of that uh, research network, research consortium, or sepsis initiative? Adrian, I want to make it clear, we, um, you know, we have your expertise, but I obviously didn't ask you to do an exhaustive review of all the previous studies and literature, uh, nor have we asked you to do an exhaustive review of all the treatment modalities, but rather we're trying to get a, your sense of some of the more important issues that haven't been covered by our, our previous speakers. But if you had to leave us with one last thought on what we could do to improve outcomes for children with sepsis who are in our ICUs around the world, what would you say? Jeff, I would say that if there's one area where we have strong evidence that we can make a huge impact is in prevention of secondary sepsis, which is nosocomial-related or hospital-acquired secondary infections. These children who are infected their immune system has responded to the infection and then sometimes it downregulates itself so that the inflammatory response doesn't kill the host while trying to kill the organism. And because it's sometimes downregulated, it allows for nosocomial pathogens that are present from the endotracheal tube, ventilator-associated pneumonia, um, coming in through the central venous catheter, which is the most common um, a source of nosocomial infection or urinary tract infections from catheters. And we know from initiatives that have been done in the last 10 years in our country and in Europe and in other countries that we can get that rate almost close to zero with just some simple interventions at this bundle of interventions aimed at targeting the source of the infection. So it's, it's very important that Although we may not be able to prevent that primary infection in many of these patients, it's up to us to prevent that secondary infection and to take the initiative as a group, as a team, because many of these um, preventive interventions is essential um, part of nursing care and nursing practice to be able to, um, how they manage the catheters, how they manage the lines, um, and the physicians when they're putting in the lines to do it sterilely, um, and certain interventions of how you sit a patient up, how you do the mouth cleaning to prevent the ventilator-associated pneumonia, and getting these lines and, things and tubes out as soon as we can. 
Um, those are all very important because it's a tragedy when you're saving someone, you can see that they're doing better, and then they get a second hit with a secondary infection and end up sometimes dying of that secondary infection or having a very prolonged ICU course due to it. Uh, that's very well said. Would your intensive care unit be willing to share your nosocomial infection bundle if others around the world should write um, in need of it? Absolutely. We um, have, uh, have had an ongoing initiative for the last decade, and we'll also share that we have had our own problems with nosocomial infections. We have shown that by implementing this bundle and having, um, have, working as a team with nursing and physicians and respiratory therapy, we were able to get our rates as well um, down to extremely low rates from what previously were, um, were higher than acceptable. So it can happen, um, it happens everywhere. And it's important to, um, to just understand that there is a package of interventions that if you do do them with vigilance, they are effective in decreasing nosocomial infection rates. Well, terrific. That's a, a great uh, way to end this session. And thank you very much for joining us on the World Shared Practices Forum. And if you have any other comments for Dr. Randolph, please leave them now. Um, and we look forward to seeing you again next month. Thanks very much. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.